my daughter, she had a project that was due. She came home and she let me know, Mom, Mom, I got a 56 out of 60 on my project. And he said, well, why a 56 out of 60? And she said, oh, it's because I had the rubric and I just made sure I got enough points to make the A. Honestly, I think that's a savvy learner. I would like totally appreciate that in a student because again, they're making a self-determination. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In a recent article posted in the Chronicle of Higher Education, author Kevin Gannon compares the time faculty spend on grading as time spent in grading jail. This article brought me to a realization that the word grading rarely has a positive connotation. He goes on in the article to explain his use of the term grading jail as a paradox of equal parts guilt and panic. Therefore, faculty lock themselves into this jail of grading time. He then moves through the article to provide examples of how to make the process easier, one of them being the use of rubrics. The Glossary of Education Reform defines the term rubric as typically an evaluation tool or set of guidelines used to promote the consistent application of learning expectations, learning objectives, or learning standards in the classroom, or to measure their attainment against a consistent set of criteria. In the education setting, rubrics are often provided in matrix form offering levels of learning proficiency, specific achievement criteria and values. The use of rubrics as a grading tool is a common practice by many faculty. The questions of development that often surround them are, what components are needed to increase their value, and how does one develop the criteria to effectively and accurately assess student learning? Rubrics are usually seen as a summative assessment tool, although implementing specific strategies can push them into a direction of becoming formative assessment tools as well. The other reasoning behind utilizing rubrics is to provide grading transparency and to avoid the element of surprise when students receive their grade. In today's episode, we will be discussing planning, implementation, and reflection strategies of using a rubric to ease the stresses of grading while delivering an effective tool to students that provides efficient and constructive feedback to the learner. Welcome to the Instruction by Design podcast. I am Celia Katwaitiwa with Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation Academic Innovation Team. Joining me today are Aaron Kraft. Stephen Crawford. Jeanette Senecal. I want to start out with a question. Describe a situation or situations that you have or would encourage the use of a rubric. I would flip that question. When wouldn't you use a rubric? Uh, I, I never recall my instructors using a rubric in elementary school or high school, but perhaps they did. I just didn't see it. Interesting. I, I'm with you on that one about when would you not want to use a rubric? I mean, to answer that question, I would not want to use a rubric if the uh, if the assessment is a multiple choice exam and it's self graded. Um, but you know, anything where I think there's student writing uh, a project or anything, I think it's really important to kind of have something of that, you know, like a, a rubric to guide your your way of reviewing and assessing an assignment. Yeah, rubrics are such foundational tools for assessment, and as you alluded to, can be really richly applied for your summative assessment strategies and also, to some degree, your formative assessments. Uh, and there are benefits for both the learner, as you, as you said, in terms of getting constructive feedback and understanding why their particular work was assessed the way it was, but also to get those faculty out of grading jail to make things consistent and logistically simpler. So if we should be using rubrics 
a majority of the time and they fit in with a lot of assessments, whether it can be, whether it's summative or formative, what would you then offer as some planning and integration strategies? Because oftentimes when faculty think about rubrics, they often think about rubrics having a watered down effect on grading. So what would you say to a faculty who has that thought in mind to ensure that their rubric is effective and well-polished? Well, I would start by saying a rubric actually prevents a watering down effect. Um, One of the things that I think happens often, and I'll say it happens with me occasionally as well, is that when you have a large number of assignments to grade and you do not have a rubric, you may be a tougher grader or you might be an easier grader with the first paper and then the exact opposite with the last. So I've seen where I've started off very tough and I've I've graded things very toughly in the very first, and then I start realizing what the norms are. And then by the time I get to the end, I'm letting things fly that I didn't let let pass on the first papers or vice versa. Sometimes I'll start grading too easily and handing out higher grades in the beginning. And then by the time I get to the end, I'm handing out harder grades because I'm getting more tired because of things I've seen. So for me, a rubric helps prevent that problem and makes me more consistent of a grader because I've considered ahead of time what should an exemplary project or paper look like? What should an exempl- uh, what should a, an average paper or project look like? Or, and what falls below that? What counts for what? I think that level of specificity is really important. It's it's not necessarily about quantifying every letter and punctuation mark potentially, but bringing a level of consistency that ameliorates that comparative effect as you're grading and you lose track of where you are and you get tired. But as far as a successful, effective rubric, one of the first things I recommend to faculty is to kind of flip their perspective. If they look at a rubric from a student's eyes before they do the work, and a student can understand this in terms of a checklist. In fact, my own students, I tell them, cross out the word rubric, write in the word checklist. This is your roadmap to being successful and attaining the grade that you want on any particular project. So if they look at it from that perspective and get a sense of whether or not their students can, you know, really understand those criteria and then be successful in in achieving them, they've got a pretty solid rubric for the most part. I'm going to steal that idea. You're welcome. Yeah. I like that sentence, ameliorate comparative effect. Ameliorate the comparative effect. You're welcome. I never would have thought that. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. Watered down effect. I'm I'm not sure I quite understand what's being watered down exactly with the use of a rubric. I think that the watered down effect could be the idea that the criteria isn't specific enough. So it's kind of a surface level criterion that gets created Mm -hmm. and therefore the meaning in the assessment isn't quite there. It's not quite as potent as otherwise if the students were left to their own devices, perhaps. Yes. It's interesting because both when I was an instructor and now as an instructional designer, I am a big advocate for modeling what you expect the students to do. Now, I I think what that means for your uh, graduate or your PhD level courses might change a little bit, but uh, particularly for the undergrad and even I taught in high school, especially for uh, your elementary and high school students, I would think that having a rubric that explicitly labels the evaluation criteria and gives examples of what that is, is actually a form of modeling. You're telling them, this is what I expect, this is what I want. 
there was a time when I was an undergraduate, I didn't know how to write a paper. I was, I was two years into school before a philosophy teacher of, of mine got mad at all of us and said, okay, I'm dedicating one class to teaching you how to write a paper. From that point forward, I learned, but to have a rubric perhaps uh, w with a detailed description, I think maybe that could have ameliorated some <laughs> of that confusion. Is that the right use of that word? <laughs> there <laughs> I you go. I just did it. Okay. So I, I, I tend to think that it's a, a type of modeling or it can be, and that's actually a positive thing. I would agree. And I think there's times where an exemplar is needed, and then there's times where the rubric can be kind of the idea of the exemplar. But that also brings into question something that I would look at within the LMS that didn't allow students, you have the option to be able to show the students the rubric and then the feedback. And then you have the option to turn that off so the students don't actually see the rubric when their assessment is being graded. And I often wondered why that was. Because to me, the idea of having a rubric is so that the students have something to look at, as in like a checklist form, to be able to know exactly what's being expected of them. So why, would you, why do you think that would be an option for students. You're talking about the LMS, like we use Blackboard and there's an option where you can attach a rubric, but then you can show it to students or hide it from them. Exactly. Mm, yeah, I, I'm curious too. I think some faculty feel that it becomes a checklist in a negative way and that students will do the minimum amount of work based off the criteria in the rubric to get whatever grade they want to get. And for me, I'm okay with that because if I've designed the rubric correctly, then it's going to scaffold a student up to do what is expected. I think part of the reasons why people hide it is they f they're afraid that it's going to give answers away. I mean, you know, it's going to tell them what to do more than they want the student to do. I'm guessing in a lot of cases here, because I'm, I'm actually a fan of showing the rubric ahead of time, um, but I also understand some of the arguments against rubrics and and some faculty feel locked in by a rubric and, and that they have to grade a certain way. But, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like the APA part. You know, if, if you're supposed to be using APA and a student, you know, are they, what happens if they're flawless? What happens if they made one or two minor mistakes? What happens if they make major mistakes? You know, those are questions that can be answered in a rubric. And, and yeah, a student may choose, if they see the rubric ahead of time, go, oh, well, it's not going to lower my grade down, so I don't need to do APA because it's not going to cost me a grade point, a, a full grade, a letter grade because of what I've done so far, according to their opinion. Of course, when it gets graded, it could be a different opinion. But, you know, I think that's part of it. I agree with showing it ahead of time. You know, that, that reminded me, my daughter in, let's see, I think it was um, May, just before school got out. She had a project that was due, of course, doing it last minute. And she, you know, managed to complete everything. And it was a creative project. So we had to run to Michael's, get all these, you know, things to add to her, her world. She was creating a new planet. And she had to, you know, do a write-out of everything, explaining everything that she included in this planet. The following week, she came home and she let me know, Mom, Mom, I got a 56 out of 60 on my project. And I said, well, why a 56 out of 60? And she said, oh, it's because I had the rubric and I just made sure I got enough points to make the A and then the rest I just didn't do. And that's a perfect ex example of what you're talking about is that, you know, if you don't put in your criteria to allow for more, and I wouldn't say specific criteria, but for deeper understanding of the materials, 
then it does become become that surface level checklist and that watered down approach of, okay, she did this, this and this, and now here's her, her grade. Honestly, I think that's a savvy learner. I would like totally appreciate that in a student because again, they're making a self-determination about what sort of matters to them. That may not agree with the teacher's view of what needs to happen. But but think about all of the steps that she went through sort of mentally to get there and decide, okay, I don't really need to worry about that because I don't need to get any more points. Yeah, so it's pretty savvy. Kind of math skills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this is, this is actually really enlightening for me. I never thought about it this way, but uh, you're right. When in the real world do we reach the highest ideal of anything? And don't get me wrong, if you can, it's fantastic. But like I take my car into uh, the Toyota dealership, my, my Corolla, Jeanette. <laughs> it's never going to die. They... They sit there and give me a list of things that need to be done. And, you know, I, looking at it, it's a reasonable list, but I maybe I don't have the money. That's usually the reason why I don't do it. Sometimes I'm a little skeptical, like, really, does this need to happen? But I'll say, you know what, let's just take care of one, three, and five, and I'll leave the rest for later. I think it sounds like uh, your daughter, Celia, was maybe taking a similar approach. She's like, you know what, I, this is what I really need right now, and this is what I'm going to do. And it, that actually doesn't sound half bad, especially the way uh, Jeanette framed it. Well, and to come back around to that faculty mindset of hiding and showing, I suspect for some, they may not have necessarily thought about it beyond the scope of a tool for assessment and evaluation. Their, their work of being an instructor, but going back to beginning with the end in mind is, is that opportunity to consider it from the learner's perspective. Tying all those threads together, again, bringing your students to an awareness of what they need to do to achieve whatever level of competency they deem important and valuable. Uh, to go on the flip side of the pros of rubrics, though, in K-12, at one point, we were grading on not so much a numeric scale, but on a objective scale. And it brought about some issues with what constitutes a meets, an approaching, an exceeds. And I think that that's also where rubrics have difficulty in, in making themselves be the best way to grade, is that it's hard to create those those standards, those criterion for the rubrics. So how do we get faculty to really think about what they put in their rubrics? How do, what kind of strategies can they use to really create the criteria that meets exactly what is needed for learning? Well, to the meets, approaches, exceeds, do they have a measurable learning objective or standard that they're starting with? Because if that's somewhat measurable and quantifiable, then you can say, you know, three out of four is a meets and four out of fours and exceeds. I mean, there, there's a certain level of quantifiable evaluation going on there as far as how that, you know, promotes your own development of a rubric that has good competency levels back to the exemplars. Even if you're doing something that's a little bit more subjective, you're evaluating writing for tone, give an example of what it means to have a good or an acceptable level of tone in a particular type of writing. You know, and I think a lot of times when we're creating a new assignment, we will have some squishy vision in our mind of what the outcome will be from students. And that's the problem. When we go to grade, we still have that squishy vision and we're not quite sure. We, we haven't quantified and, and, and some people don't, so you can't quantify everything. Well, yeah, you're, that's difficult at times, but you need to because in the end, you're going to be quantifying it for the students saying you either passed or you didn't. And so by having that vision of, like you said, what are the objectives of the assignment? How does this align? 
Is this meeting the objective? And then what counts as you've gone above and beyond, you've excelled beyond the objective? How do I reward that? I think that's one of the problems with rubrics is we always make the top line of the rubric, congratulations, you've met the learning objective. But that's not average work. That's above average work. That's A work. You know, C work is average work. And so if we want you to be an average student by just meeting the learning objectives, then you would set meeting the learning objectives at that C level, that meeting expectations level. And until you exceed and excel beyond the objective, that would become the higher level. I mean, so, but people don't want to quantify it that way sometimes because it's, it's a hard, squishy topic sometimes, especially if you haven't envisioned what is, what does this look like? I'd like to point out that whenever we have these conversations on our podcast or anywhere, when things come back to a strong, measurable objective, that always makes me a little happy because it just points out how important objectives are and a well-written objective is because it's connected to everything. Well, you, your objective is what the uh, rubric is based on. What yes. do you want the students to learn? And should that gets, it should be, yeah. That exactly. gets fleshed out. So, well, I mean, so let's take it back to the beginning here. So what you're talking about is the level of competencies. And what, what, how did you label them? As far as the grading goes, I went falls behind or falls below approaching meets exceeds. And that's not to say that every rubric follows those mm -hmm. um, levels, but meets and exceeds. Right. So these are the levels of competencies, right? Yes. And then uh, oftentimes they're written as uh, in uh, columns, mm -hmm. column form. So like in the left is the zero and on the right is the five or the four or whatever the top score is or something like that. But then each competency has a descriptor in it. And so I would say here, you want to be as detailed as possible in that descriptor about what doesn't meet, or what falls below, what meets and what exceeds. But how detailed? Because sometimes when you include too much detail without room for some creative thinking, mm -hmm. then I think it becomes too much of a checklist of, sure. okay, I had this, this, then this. And then there's no creativity room. Well, and, and take my example of APA. So you're writing a research paper as part of the assignment. And usually having some sort of formatting is always part of the criteria, even if it's not a learning objective, because that's kind of one of those programmatic cultural norms you weave into everything. Since we use APA here, you know, there's a small amount of points assigned to using the APA format. Are all APA format errors the same? And that's, that's the problem you're trying to address. How detailed can you be? If I say, oh, you made one error, one APA error, that one error could be the entire reference page. Or it could be one inline citation. Um, those errors are two different errors. So how do you define that? And, and that, that, that's part of the question. So it's like, so I think that's when we go back to what you were talking about earlier, Jeanette, about the exemplars, you know, this is what you're looking for. And, you know, and I think one of the things is there should be a little room for maneuvering within it. You, you, know, you want it to be a good description, but not such a tight description that there is no wiggle room for judgment. Because not all errors are the same. Okay, okay. But to play devil's advocate here, APA is pretty cut and dry in, in, in a lot of ways. Like, did you 
formatted correctly or not. Like APA is either APA or, or not. But my point is, is that is an inline citation error or where it's you misplaced the comma or 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 you just didn't cite it, you cited it but not correctly. Is that the same type of error as a reference listing of that same item mm -hmm. or the entire reference list itself? You just you mess up a heading or something. I mean, there's different types of formatting errors, is what I'm saying. Uh, sure, absolutely. So this is where I would argue uh, my original point of, of having detailed descriptors like. So maybe you need to tell them like your inline citation does count as part of the uh, APA reference. Yeah. 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 So I would take your example and say you're double barreling your criteria, split them apart. Part of the the scoring is inclusion of the reference list of whatever scholarly mm -hmm. standards you want to set in general that may not necessarily be APA related, but they're part of being a scholarly writer, perhaps. And then your APA formatting. And to take that one step further, there's a whole other rabbit hole you can go down in terms of those errors and defined errors, whether the rubric represents just you earn points for doing it or you lose points. It's a deductive yeah. criteria. Mm -hmm. They only lose points if they do not attend to those yeah. potential error and I think that's a great point you made about the double barreling, barreling part is that I think a lot of times faculty think that every row has to be, the, you know, every category has to be the exact same number of points. And that should not be the case because some things are worth more than others, especially as you split them up more and right. more. I think this also, one of the pros of um, adding in rubrics is the idea of conscious teaching and conscious assessing. One of the things I've seen instructors do and all over the place, K-12, higher ed, is that they do their teaching, but they don't necessarily think about how their assessment is going to happen until they get to that point of grading and then they end up in grading jail. This is one of those things that lends itself to being conscious of it in the beginning and developing this rubric so they know where to take their teaching, but also how to think about what exactly they want the students to get rather than waiting till the end and then they see all of these pieces, you know, missing. Well, you mentioned uh, there's a lot of front end work. Are you, mm -hmm. you talked about that. And I think that's one of the critiques of rubrics is that there is a significant investment of time in the front end. And maybe uh, instructors just don't have the time to sit there and flesh it all out at the beginning. I mean, uh, of course, we're talking about earlier, we're talking about, you know, in an ideal world, ideally you could, but what if you are crunched for time? Can you sit there and write out detailed uh, criteria, level of competencies and descriptors for every assignment or every critical assignment? I think that's something you start to build on. So maybe you might not have it for every assessment or every assignment that you have in the one course. But over time, as you continue to teach this course, maybe you start to build up to creating these rubrics for every oh, assignment. Yeah. But again, going back to that front end, front end idea, it's being conscious of the teaching and the assessing that you're doing in the course. And sometimes you do have to invest that front end time to develop a well-designed course that flows. And that's getting meeting those objectives that you have set for those students. Yeah, and that's a good point about building your own library over time. And there are templates out there. I have slight hesitation to suggest templates, but if you've never constructed a rubric that attends to APA criteria, for example, there are good exemplar statements out there you can lean on to help um, continuously improve your rubrics over time as well. 
Yes. And you can always see an instructional designer to help you design a rubric if you're really needing some help with that. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the template problem because I've seen where some programs have decided that they're going to use the same rubric in all their courses for the same type of assignment. I'm not a big fan of that personally because that means that it's not addressing each assignment in its own unique ways. And uh, because not all writing assignments are the same, for an example, mm-hmm. I mean, you have different points of emphasis. And so I always get nervous when I see they're using the exact same template on every single writing assignment without any room for modification to address some, especially some of the topic issues. I mean, I, I'm fine with the grammar and APA and everything else and the formatting. But but when it comes to the actual content, that's something I'm, I'm very mindful of going. There should be a little more flexibility there. So moving forward with thinking about building the criteria for rubrics is the idea that at times without a rubric, an assessment can provide a grade that doesn't have a backup for how the grade was given. And in a federal court filing, a student at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst complained that a faculty member and the university had violated his civil and contractual rights and intentionally inflicted emotional distress by giving him a C in the course instead of a 92.5% he felt he had earned. That's coming from using rubrics as a defense against grade appeals in faculty focus. Something interesting about this was the writer, Sidney Fulbright, a PhD, had said that if the faculty had used a rubric, instead he had curved the grade and everything was dropped, but if he had used a rubric, that would have helped with the grade appeal process. What are your thoughts on using rubrics as a defense against grade appeals? I'll go back to what I said earlier about the consistency. When, when I grade, having that rubric and, know, and thinking, what does an exemplary version of this assignment look like? What does a meets expectation version of this assignment look like? Having that in mind keeps me consistent from student to student. And if two students compared their papers and one had massive amounts of errors and one didn't and their grade was the same, that's a mistake on me because the fact that I use a rubric, I didn't use it correctly. But if I didn't use a rubric, that's grounds for them to go, that makes no sense. You must hate me. There must be some emotional anger or premeditated thing that you have against a student. And so having a rubric, I think, provides that, that standardization from a faculty standpoint going, look, I'm grading and I'm grading consistently. The word consistently, I think, is very important. Well, at the bottom line, what you're talking about is an attempt to document your objectivity in terms of of assessing any particular student. The reality is, although documentation is good, there still will be some variance in in individual performance and how even a well-designed objective rubric can have differences in, in a total score at the end. It may not be bulletproof, but it certainly helps. But it shouldn't be a 20 point swing. No, no. <laughs> I think that's kind of important with the, co- the context of that court case. Yes. And in this case, the instructor had curved the grade. So that kind of created that spread. That they is a whole other issue. They curved it because they felt like the students had done too well. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, so that's a, that's a tough argument. But I think this kind of goes back around to my uh, question uh, previously about the upfront investment of time, which costs you more time staying up till midnight writing a rubric for an assignment or months of litigation? <laughs> Fortunately, we don't get sued very often. <laughs> Fortunately. But it's still a good point. I mean, forget the suing part, the, the number of students who complain and argue and haggle over a, a better grade. 
when you have a good rubric that you stand by and trust and you're applying consistently, it makes a very different conversation so that you're looking at it from a different point of view, a more objective point of view. Thank you, Stephen. As we end this episode in our enriching conversation, take some time to reflect on your own assessment strategies and see where rubrics can be integrated. Create a plan for implementation and ease some of your grading flow. I'd like to thank our amazing IBD team, Stephen, Jeanette, and Aaron. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'd like to thank our amazing IBD team, Stephen, Jeanette, and Aaron. <laughs> that high lilt at the end. And Aaron? And Aaron? Sorry, I didn't go back to that ending, and I thank knew you. I wanted to. And you I want to come back? You want, write, you want to rewrite it right now and try it again? Do you want to try? Yeah. It? You wanted like an ending, closing sentence. Yes, and that's what I was... Yeah, take a moment, rewrite it, and we'll just record again. Top of my head. Yeah, we got plenty of battery here. So.